This episode of Literary Treks is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 150,000 titles for your desktop or mobile device. To get a free audiobook of your choice, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. Also, help us keep Star Trek discussion coming to you each day by becoming a Trek FM patron through Patreon. Get access to exclusive content and become part of the team. You'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm. Hey everyone, I'm Rod Roddenberry and you're listening to Trek FM. books. I thought I'd take some light reading in case I got bored. Welcome everyone to another episode of Literary Treks, our dedicated books and comic show. And I'm so excited to be here tonight, Dan. And you know why I know why? Absolutely. I, I think I know. It's because we've got our first author interview of the year. <laughs> if uh, if you could hear a sound of me popping a champagne cork, I'd be doing it right now because, yeah, definitely really excited for this. Well, it's so wonderful because we're starting off the year with Ascendance. We're finally going to wrap up this storyline that's been dangling like a hanging chad. That's right. If you don't know what that is, you'll just want to look that up. Uh, since, you know, 2009, it's it's been a long time. Uh, mm-hmm. And it's been a long road getting from there to here. But that's not this show. That's another show on the network. Um, Dan, we actually, we have no news this week. Um, I, I'll just say to everybody, hey, next week we're covering The Good That Men Do, the mm-hmm. Enterprise novel. So if you haven't read that or you may you know, have read it a while ago, like me when it first came out, uh, pick that one up and read that and join us next week. But Dan, before we jump into the feature, talking to David, why don't you let everybody know where they can find us online? Well, Matthew, you can find us, of course, on our website at trek.fm, and there you'll find links for all of our podcasts. We cover every corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. If you want to contact us, there's a form on the website at trek.fm slash contact. Uh, if you'd like to leave us a voicemail, just look in the sidebar on the show page or go to speakpipe.com slash trek.fm. Uh, we're on Twitter at trek.fm. We're also on Facebook at facebook.com slash trek.fm. And of course, we've got our listeners only group on Facebook called the Babel Conference. Just type the Babel Conference, B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook, or go to our website at trek.fm and click discussion on the menu bar. Of course, for literary treks, we also have a Goodreads group. Uh, You can find us on goodreads.com. Just search for literary treks. And you can find bookshelves with all of the previously covered books on the show, as well as books we're currently reading, so you know what's coming up for future shows. And of course, there are also great conversations happening there about all of the books and comics. Uh, Please check us out on iTunes, Speaker, TuneIn, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, or go to the website and download the MP3 file. Uh, You can listen to us at all of those places. We've got you covered there. Well, Dan, I hope everybody will join us in those places. But come on over with us to the feature where we're joined by David or George III to talk about Ascendance. So excited. (laughs) 
Dan, I'm so excited because we are here back in the interview zone at the beginning of the year. And I've got to say the lineup for this year is fantastic already. You know, David R. George III, his newest book, Ascendance, has come out. We're going to have Kirsten Byer soon. James Swallow, the list goes on and on. We're celebrating Star Trek 50th anniversary this year. And what better way to do that than returning to my favorite part of Star Trek, Deep Space Nine and Novelverse. And and David, it's fantastic to have you back on the show. Thanks for having me again. It's good to be here. Always, always great to have the authors on. And especially like you, Deep Space Nine is my absolute favorite, Matthew. So very, very thrilled to have you on today. I'm I'm happy to be writing Deep Space Nine so that there's a reason for me to be on. <laughs> oh, goodness. Uh, you know, it's so funny. Dan and I have been talking back and forth, and, and it is great to see a book there, uh, you know, on my iPad or when I go to, say, the, the bookstore and, and see that Deep Space Nine logo again. It, mm. It's just, it really is fantastic to be back here. And that's a big thing, um, you know weaving this tapestry for you has been a really interesting experience because it's been every way but normal uh, because, you know, pocketbooks uh, in 2008, 2009, they had set up the Ascendant storyline and then it got dropped because of uh, everything they did with the Destiny series and catching Deep Space Nine up. So as you're working on this, was there any kind of plotting that had been done before that you were asked to work in, or did you just get to pretty much craft everything yourself? You know, it wasn't so much that the Deep Space Nine Ascendance storyline got abandoned. Um, it it did, but it certainly was not something that was intentional. As you said, that we jumped the... Uh, the storyline ahead four years from 2377 to 2381 in order to line up Deep Space Nine with Next Generation and um, in particular with Dave Mack's brilliant Destiny trilogy. And uh, just as a consequence of that, yeah, we got away from the Ascendance storyline. And as I've talked about before, when I wrote the next book after the Ascendance storyline had been set up, that four-year gap uh, in the stories uh, meant to either to me I had a couple of choices I could just say that the thing had, it was still unresolved which didn't seem very satisfying or very reasonable mm-hmm. um, I could have said that it was resolved and then explained how it had been resolved but nobody had figured that out quite yet but even if i'd been right. able to do that where well, i'm not sure i could have come up with something that wouldn't have been i think very satisfying either because people wanted to see this story play out i wanted to see this story play out not just as a writer yes it would have been great to write it but it would have been great to read it um and so what i did was i just i hinted that the situation had been resolved but i didn't explain entirely how it had been resolved. And I had some ideas in my head and I tried to tie it in with some, some other things that had been written previously. And again, this was just all something that was in my brain. It wasn't going to get published. Uh, we did, I didn't know if there were, we were ever going to get back to the Ascendance storyline. I wanted to, and I kept talking to my editor about it. And we had a back and forth, and I came up with a couple of ideas, and um, Margaret Clark, uh, as my editor, rightly 
said, you know what, this isn't quite right. And we went back and forth um, until I really hit upon what I ultimately would become, you know, the conclusion of the Ascendant storyline. And I, I was happy to be able to do it in a way, I think, that actually incorporated the time jump so that it seems as though what happened had been sort of plotted all along, which was not an entirely easy thing to do, but at least from a writing standpoint, I found it very gratifying. Um, And I felt like it all came together. And I was able to tie in a bunch of older elements, sometimes subtly, sometimes not so subtly, that um, was just fun to do. I feel like I've been playing, as far as the Ascendant storyline goes, I've been playing a long game with this. And uh, I feel like Ascendant's finally led us to the resolution and I, I'm, I was pretty pleased with the way it came out. <laughs> Reading the story uh, and seeing all the work that you did, it, it feels almost like some kind of temporal mechanics chess game. Uh, <laughs> Isn't it always of, a chess of... <laughs> game when you're dealing with temporal mechanics? <laughs> oh my gosh, it's it's incredible. And, and so I kind of wanted to ask you too, going into this, um, I know that Obviously, you know the Deep Space Nine story very well, having worked in the relaunch for a long time. What kind of research did it take for you to go back and be fully up on all that had been laid for this Ascendant storyline so you could feel as comfortable as possible, you know, writing the conclusion to that part of this story? Well, that's a good question, and it's interesting because it's not really um, something that's specific to the Ascendant storyline. Whenever you're writing Star Trek, there's a lot that's come before, whatever, whether you're writing Deep Space Nine or Voyager or Next Generation, the original series, whatever, Enterprise, um, lots has come before. So you want to make sure that you, you're, you're honoring the continuity that's come before and oftentimes making use of it. As far as the Ascendants go, one thing that is I found particularly um, unusual is that while I, as a reader, had this notion of this great big setup for the Ascendants, and certainly it felt like it was this great big setup, there really wasn't a lot written about the Ascendants. I mean, the Ascendants were in a couple of books uh, and only barely mentioned um, for the most part. And in fact, in most cases, I think it was only three or four books that they were even mentioned in, and two of them were mine. So right. <laughs> it wasn't like there was a lot out there, which is both a help because it allows you a, a broad range to try and figure things out, uh, and also a hindrance because I felt like I was moving toward this this grand conclusion for the ascendance, and yet really there wasn't all that much setup. It, it felt big. Mm-hmm. And you knew something was coming, mm-hmm. and, and Marco Palmieri, who had been writing, uh, been editing at the time, uh, and uh, and his writers did a great job of making it feel big and, and made it feel like something was coming, but there just wasn't that much there. Um, of course, you also, mm-hmm. when you got Ileana Gamora mixed up with the Ascendants, that added a whole lot because she had a big backstory. So right. um, to answer your question, I guess I really. It was a question of reading, reading the books, reading sometimes just sections of books that had um, the ascendants in them, making sure I was up on Ileana Gamora and all of that. So it just it takes a lot of reading and it takes trying to keep all of that stuff in your head, making copious notes and 
trying to figure out how it all fits together. And it goes beyond the ascendance and Ileana Gamora. It's all the other things that, that I wanted to try and tie together, like the Dominion, the founders, um, and, and the progenitor. Mm-hmm. And, and um, I really tied something in from Serpents Among the Ruins. So, I mean, there's, I go back a long way to try and make this all cohere. So it does it does take some effort, but you know it's basically a lot of reading and a lot of thinking. Well, speaking of tying in all these different elements, I mean, you know, this story doesn't just like you say tell the ascendant story, uh, but you know it furthers the current story and even connects all the way back to the pilot episode emissary. Uh, and I was wondering if you could speak a bit about your process of weaving all of that together and maybe kind of how you chose what to tell and what not to tell. Uh, for instance, um, we know that Rebecca, uh, Cisco's daughter, was kidnapped at some point. Um, and, you know, that wasn't really a part of this story. Was there kind of a conscious decision to decide what to tell and not to tell in this flashback? Or not flashback, but I guess telling of, of what happened in the past? Well, sure. I mean, it's obviously it's uh, as much as we can make it, it's a conscious decision. Uh as far as Rebecca being kidnapped, I mean, that was one of the things that happened in the interregnum between the, the uh, 2377 and 2381 books. Um, and that's only been mentioned, but it hasn't been fleshed out. Yeah, this was not that wasn't included in here because that just wasn't a part of this story. That doesn't mean that it won't be um, included at some point in a future novel. It doesn't mean that it will. It's, um, you know, it just depends on you know, the nature of the storytelling going forward. But, um, yeah, I mean, you want to you wanna try and figure out everything that makes sense to be in a story that will make the story satisfying and, and come together. For me, one of the great things about Star Trek is, and I think for a lot of people, is its message of, of um, optimism, really, about the future. And that's reflected in things like when we get to the next generation, look, there's a Klingon on the bridge. This Klingons were our enemies, but now, lo and behold, mm, yeah. they're our allies. And that's what Star Trek really is about. That's one of the really important things, not just uh, optimism, but also an inclusiveness. Everybody gets a seat at the table. doesn't matter if you're black or white or green or blue, man or woman or other transgender, uh, gay, straight, doesn't matter. Everybody gets a seat at the table. And I think that's one of the reasons Star Trek is so popular, because it has this positive, inclusive message for the future. And I think that's also been reflected in, in plenty of the books. And I'll go back to Dave Mack's great Destiny trilogy, where the Borg are these terrible, terrible villains. And he resolves that story, spoiler alert, not by destroying the Borg, but by essentially freeing them. And uh, that's sort of what I wanted to do with the Ascendants. I didn't want to just have a big war, a big battle, and, oh, yes, let's go kill all the bad guys. Um, I mean, sometimes that's what you have to do. Sometimes Adolf Hitler rears his ugly head, and you have to fight back. But if there's a way to avoid that, if there's a way to not fight, if there's a way to, through diplomacy or, or, or kindness or compassion or understanding find a better solution, I'm all for that. And and I like that reflected in my Star Trek, and I try and reflect it in the Star Trek that I write. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I always try and figure out what belongs. And 
Um, Rebecca's kidnapping is an interesting story, but it, uh, it didn't belong in this. What's really interesting, too, is, is you were just talking. I was thinking back on the story and, and the way in which Deep Space Nine has always had this fun uh, way of looking at uh, the prophecies uh, of certain races, and especially, obviously, the Bajorans and the, with Cisco and the Emissary and everything that that came to mean. And here, you know, the, the Ascendant's prophecies come out to play, but in ways that they never obviously would have expected. And I thought that that was mm. so beautifully done because it fit, and that that's Deep Space Nine in a nutshell, you know, that these prophecies can come true. It's just probably not going to be in the way that everybody expects it to. Uh, and I, I love that. I think that's an old trope in not necessarily science fiction per se, but there's sort of a, a little subgenre of, say, science fiction and horror where, for example, you're making a deal with the devil and, you, you know, you, you're going to get what you want by making this deal, but it's never what you think it's going <laughs> right. to be. And, and, and sort of prophesying and, and, and having the prophecies fulfilled, but not in the way you expect this is, was like that. Um, and Deep Space Nine, even deeper than just dealing with the Bajoran prophecies, um, and and sort of turning them around, uh, turning them on their ears, uh, also just sort of doesn't maintain the status quo itself throughout the show. So it's I think it's always good to try and maintain that in the books. That sort of essence of Deep Space Nine is something that's very changeable, which is dangerous because people like characters, people like certain situations. They don't like things to change. If they like something, why why would you want it to change? But but Deep Space Nine was always like that. You know, I mean, Julian Bashir was this wet behind the ears, very green, young uh, Starfleet officer who really didn't know anything. Oh, nope, sorry, he's a super genius. Yeah. <laughs> he was just tricking you. I mean, things changed even with the main characters all the time. By the end of the show, you know, Cisco was gone. Worf was gone. Odo was gone. Things kept changing, and that was just part of what Deep Space Nine was. So we've tried to do that in the books as well. Um, and, uh, you know, changing the Bajoran prophecies or, or having them fulfilled but not in the way that you would expect is, I think, just part and parcel of the Deep Space Nine DNA. Well, and it's one of the things that, that made the show special, and especially, too, is we're just kind of getting into a little bit of the characters. You know, I remember when Rough Beast of Empire came out, and uh, it was an interesting book to read as a fan because so much had changed, and we obviously didn't have the backstory for it. And as you've been able to kind of go back and fill in some of these stories, you've been able to give us the puzzle pieces to build the characters, especially like Kira and Cisco and Roe and all that. And I kind of wanted to, t to talk to you about and, and hear about from you, your journey to uh, building these characters to a place that you've already set. So you've already set where they're going to be in Rough Beasts of Empire. What's it like to try and go back in and make that interesting enough for the reader to still really connect with where they're going to go? Well, I think part of that is not figuring things out on the fly. I think part of it is that I, when I jumped the Deep Space Nine series from 2377 to 2381, I thought about why the characters were going to be in different places when I 
picked them up in 2381. I wanted to know why they were different. Now, I might not have had all the particular d details laid out in my head. Certainly didn't. Um, I didn't create four years of stories and then and and then and then not write them and right. then move on. But I did think about it a lot because. I was given a couple of mandates for Rough Beasts of Empire, one of which was, of course, jump the story ahead four years. Another was get Cisco back on a starship um, and also have Spock uh, in, the, in the story. That was pretty much what I was told. And I think there might have been one or two other things I was asked to do uh, that, that I don't call right off the bat right now. But um, so I, for me, the first thing I had to do was figure out, okay, well, why is Cisco going back in Starfleet? Because for me as a reader, it had been very satisfying for Cisco to come back from the Celestial Temple for the birth of his daughter, Rebecca, and then not to return to Deep Space Nine, not to return to Starfleet, but to live as sort of an Eminence Grise on, on right. Azure and to really be, as the prophets have said, of Bajor. You know, uh, and to have a satisfying, positive life there. But it's also kind of, in a way, dull. I mean, if we keep Cisco there, what role does he fulfill in the storytelling? I mean, we can mention him. We can maybe go visit him every now and then. But where are we going to get that that Star Trek drama from? That the, the Starfleet drama from? It's it's. I'm facing the same thing actually in a way with Kira, although Kira has been easy easier to. Uh, to move around the board. But um, so I tried to figure out what, why would Cisco go back to Starfleet? What would be reasonable? And not only what would be reasonable, but what would be compelling and different? I didn't want to do what was expected. And some people will tell you that they didn't expect what I did with Cisco and they hate me for it. <laughs> some people will tell you differently. Um, but I, of course, wanted to create Cisco, Cisco's future self in a way that was consistent with who he was. And, and I know some people think that I didn't, that I betrayed the character, but I can cite chapter and verse of the actual aired episodes that back up everything that I did in Rough Beasts of Empire. And of course, Rough Beasts of Empire was only one part of his arc. Um, and we've moved forward from that. But and, and as you said, I've gone back and detailed some of the things that happened in the in the four year gap, um, I've been able to do that now, and you know it may still happen. I might do it. Other writers might do it, um, but but there's enough detail there, and I thought about it enough that I knew roughly what some of those details were going to be, and I know it, I knew it would all come together and make sense. So I, I just had to work it out to, to and, and do it. So. Um, and I didn't want to use because I wanted to cover the ascendants and go sort of back in time. Um, I, I, I didn't want to use conventional time travel, and I, I guess I did use time travel, but I didn't. I don't feel like I used it a conventional way, like somebody's gone back in time and now all these things are happening, and then they go back to the future. I mean, that happens with one of the characters, but really, the first part of ascendants is just right back in 2077. Right. I mean, it's just, that's where the book takes place. Um, it's, and it's not, and in that part of it, there are no time travelers. So, um, and I think that sort of helped serve the story because it's not some complicated chessboard of, it might be for the reader um, figuring out who's where and why and all of that, but it's actually still a pretty straightforward story just in that time frame.
one thing about Cisco is um, several times in this story, he kind of is a little bit self-reflective about his place, uh, you know, in Bajoran society and that sort of thing. And he kind of, he really seems to feel that his time as the emissary of the prophets has, has really come to an end. And I was just wondering if you could speak a little bit about, you know, what brought him to that point, you know, kind of really feeling like uh, his experience in the wormhole really kind of made it feel like uh, he was coming back to kind of fill that role. You know, I think at one point they, uh, Benjamin Sisko does not exist by accident in any universe. Uh, he was supposed to be the emissary in the mirror universe. And Sisko says something like, that's the only reason any of us exist. I was wondering if you could speak a little bit about, you know, where Sisko sees himself now in that role and where that might be going forward. Well, as we've left him, uh, left off in, in, um, in Sacraments of Fire, I think it wasn't Ascendance, right? It was Sacraments. Um, maybe it was Ascendance. I don't even remember. You know, there are, sometimes they all blend together. Um, you know, Cisco's out now exploring the Gamma Quadrant, and I know that I, I, in trying to bring his arc as the emissary of the prophets to um, maybe a close, maybe just um, a. a, a a stop along the way, I, you know, it remains to be seen. Um, I, I tried to go back to what made Deep Space Nine what it was. And I know some people argue that one of the things that made Cisco unique is his place as a religious icon in Bajoran society. And that's certainly true. That was something we hadn't seen or explored before. I mean, we saw a little bit with Picard in the one episode who watches the watchers, but, um, it's not something we got to explore in the way that we did with Cisco. But I would argue that that's not the only thing that makes Cisco Cisco, that, um, that there are more things than that. And uh, just as a character. And the thing is, if you want to keep him I'm thinking as a writer, you want to keep him as, as the emissary of the prophets. How do you go about that? I mean, first of all, I didn't really have an option about putting him back on a ship. He was going to be back on a ship. So, okay, how does he go back to a ship and still be the emissary? Um, and, and I don't know. What's interesting about him still doing the same thing he'd been doing? I mean, really, Starfleet sent him to Bajor to bring Bajor into the Federation. And you get the sense from the prophets that they had, if not that particular set of circumstances in mind, but it, it, it was something like taking care of, of the Bajoran people and certainly bringing them into the Federation aids that cause. So um, where do you go from there and keep him in the same place? And so I saw why the, they wanted him back in Starfleet and and um, on a starship, because let's let's shake things up, because Deep Space Nine always did that. And let's explore the character in a different way and in different circumstances. That doesn't mean that he's necessarily never going to be the emissary again or that he's not even the emissary now. It just means his circumstances are changed and perhaps his way of thinking about it. But these were all interesting things to explore. I mean, think about Neil Armstrong being the first human being to set foot on another celestial body. He's the first man on the moon. Then he comes back to Earth. Okay, where do you go from there? It's interesting question. I mean, um, 
So now where does Cisco go? Uh, and it'll be good to find out, I think. I mean, I, I love the character of Cisco. And uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to, to what is in store for him in, in the future. I'm interested, too, uh, with that because Cisco is my favorite captain. And, you know, Deep Space Nine was really interesting because it, it gave us, I, I felt like, one of the most unique captains that we got. Uh, Cisco has a whole different set of skills that, you know, I didn't really see a lot of the other captains have. And I'm kind of wondering just for you, especially where Cisco is now, what do you think it is that sets Cisco apart from, say, just, you know, Picard or Riker or, uh, you know, Janeway or Kirk? Um, especially in the time frame with which we find him at the end of Ascendance? Well, I mean, obviously, apart from him being the emissary and a religious icon for the Bajorans, which obviously sets him apart, apart from all of that, just his own characteristics, I mean, he's a family man. Um, and I know Picard is now as well, and Riker and all of that, but you're talking about you know the time frame we were dealing with back then. He was a family man. He was somebody raising uh, a teenage boy, somebody who had a terrible loss in his life and, and a recent loss, somebody who was never interested in – wasn't interested in, in where he was assigned. He wasn't interested in going to Bajor. He wasn't interested uh, in being in command. Um, we learned sort of as the series went on um, and, and then supported in the books as well that you know, he was going to be an engineer, right? So it's not somebody who – took this path, you get the feeling that Kirk always wanted to be captain of a starship. The Picard was headed in his career to be captain of a starship, even Riker right. and Janeway and, and Archer. I mean, this this was their reason for being. They wanted to do this, but not so much Cisco, which sort of makes him a fish out of water, um, which allows you to tell some different stories and also get some different perspectives. Cisco's perspectives on things always seem to be a little bit different not not more correct or or uh, less accurate, just different. And um, he had a different approach, I think, sometimes to problem mm -hmm. solving. Sometimes he would be willing to do things that maybe the other captains wouldn't do, or he would or he would try and stop short of doing some of the things that they would do. And um, I think he's got an interesting perspective. And I just I just like I've always liked the character, and um, I like writing him. I like writing Cisco. I like writing. Here I like writing Roe a great deal because they're all very strong sort of outsider kinds of people, and uh, they have you know interesting perspectives and interesting ways of looking at things. I, I like to find them in situations where you might expect anybody else in such a situation to react in one way, but then these characters mm. react in a different way, and yet it still makes sense. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think Cisco's just got a different perspective on things because he's had a different life experience. You know, as I said, being a family man, experiencing that terrible loss, not actually pursuing command to begin with, just puts him up, sets him apart from from the other Star Trek mm, captains. Definitely. Well, something I really, really enjoyed about this novel, and uh, you know, kind of this story was started in the previous novel, Sacraments of Fire was the idea of faith and belief and kind of how that was shown through the characters of Sandeska and uh, Captain Rowe. Uh, I thought it was really interesting how, you know, kind of the same evidence or the same um, experiences led Deska to re reject his faith. Uh, but at the same, at the same time, 
on the other side of the coin, Roe is, is finding herself closer to a faith that she's always rejected. Uh, I thought that was really interesting. I was wondering if you could, you could talk a little bit about these two characters and kind of what led to uh, that aspect of the story. Well, really, Sacraments of Fire, although it sets up a lot of the Ascendant stuff and, and Kira's arc and Tyranitar's arc uh, and Ileana Gamor, I feel that Sacraments of Fire is a Sandesca novel because, after all, the complete story that it tells, tells partial stories for the Ascendants and, and the other uh, characters I just mentioned, but the, the complete story that it tells is Sandesca's apostasy. And... I, I don't know. I, I, I'm trying to remember how I hit upon dealing with that. You know, a fascinating thing to me about Deep Space Nine is the fact that it was absolutely willing to explore issues of mm -hmm. religion yeah. that you don't get in a lot of uh, in primetime television. And mm. I, I don't know, it just was fascinating to me to watch that exploration. And it, it's it was it's different than talking about um, earth religions, because, of course, we don't have a wormhole with demonstrably existent gods living them in them. Now, you may think that they're just aliens and that they're not divine, and that's one interpretation, but people don't doubt that they exist. So it's different than talking about earth religion, too. It, it throws a little uh, another twist in there, which is fun to deal with. Um, so, yeah, I... I you know, I, I know plenty of people who are very religious, um, very devout, who um, if they somehow discovered that what they believed was not true, they would absolutely be able to put one foot in front of the next the next day. They wouldn't it wouldn't destroy them. It wouldn't it wouldn't disrupt their lives. It would make be a change. And there might be some sadness because something that you presumably got strength from it, you, you know you if you learned that it wasn't true that that could affect you but i think I, I i know other people who perhaps it would have a very very negative effect on um and you think about it, it doesn't have to be religion it could be really anything if you if you have something that's a core part of your life that you put a lot of time and energy into and you discover that for decades what you've been, what you've thought was correct, is not correct. That what you've put your faith in, and again, it just doesn't. It doesn't have to be only religion that we're talking about, is is not the way it is. That, that I think that that can be potentially very difficult and maybe even devastating to somebody. Um, and because oh, Sandeska was portrayed in the novels as somebody exceedingly devout, it seemed to me that this could be one of the ways that he was impacted. And so I just wanted to explore that. I I feel like I did a good job with that. I feel like it was a, a good and interesting story, but I think it might have been more compelling if we had seen more of Seska, Sandeska previously. Um, uh, and, and that's something that, that uh, you know, we have a new space station and we have a, a new crew or, or some new crew, um, and because of the dictates uh, and, uh, of storytelling and the um, the limitations uh, on on length and things like that, it's not always easy to be able to get sizable parts for all of the characters in, into a novel. And so, some of the, there are some characters out there that I've wanted to explore that I haven't gotten to yet. And um, 
Unfortunately, in a way, the first time we really, really got to explore Sen, we also said goodbye to him, which doesn't mean he won't be back. Uh, who knows? But, um, you know, it was, it was good to, to, to be able to explore an interesting part of human life, albeit in a Bajoran. Um, and, and, you know, the same thing goes for, for Roe. I wanted to have a balance, not that, okay, we're making somebody essentially from a believer and an atheist, we have to make an atheist into a believer. Roe's not there yet, uh, and I don't know if Roe will ever get there. But she's asking questions, and it makes sense to me that if somebody who has faith, who has somebody has a belief in a god or gods, starts questioning, why can't things happen that would maybe start a non-believer into questioning? Mm-hmm. So, again, it's just something that I found interesting and that I wanted to explore. Uh, and Sens, at least for now, is no longer with us, but certainly Roe Laren is. And so we'll probably see, you know, where she goes from here. I mean, she may be a believer. She may not. She's just asking herself questions now and, and seeing things perhaps from a different perspective than she had previously. I think it's really interesting because, you know, when you look at the kind of history of, of Star Trek, you know, most of the time things are from the other side of people going from them believing in one thing to to you know believing in something else and usually it's kind of a scientific thing uh so it, it's such a wonderful just mix you know on something we don't get to see a ton of in star trek and i really loved it that it's just an it, it feels like such a wonderful natural progression for roe to to maybe move more in this general direction and just so interesting because the same thing that can make somebody say oh i don't believe this can be the same thing that makes somebody say, oh, no, I do believe this. And that's that's right. the wonderful craziness of, of humanity. So I think that's just an interesting thing. Yeah, yeah, I absolutely think so. I mean, I think, yeah, the, the people obviously have different lives, different experiences, different recollections, different upbringings. And, and so the exact same information, the exact same event can have different uh, impacts on them. Uh, yeah, so that's uh, that was fun to explore. For you, as uh, you were working on this novel, you know, you talked a little bit about working in some of the things you got from uh, Serpents Among the Ruins, Allegiance and Exile, uh, you know, uh, Olympus Descending. All of these things really got to play into this novel, and I thought that that was really cool uh, and, and made for great surprises for for people that you know, have been reading these novels for a very long time. And was that something that was intentional for you as, you know, you had this story in mind, or did it just kind of come to you, oh, I could do this with this and answer this question? It was a little bit of both. I hit on some of these ideas a while ago, um, but it's taken time to be able to convince somebody to let me write, (laughs) or let anybody write the Ascendance storyline. Um, and of course, while I was not so much writing the novel, but working on the outline for the novel, um, you know, I had to expand, you know, mm-hmm. these connections that I, that I had wanted to make. But I was very dedicated to not simply, as I said earlier, just destroying the ascendants, just wiping them out and saying, okay, fine, we just defeated an enemy. Because to me, that's sort of not the Star Trek way. Mm-hmm. It's not that there aren't times when you absolutely need to defend yourself with as much firepower as you can muster. But if there are ways to avoid that, then let's try and avoid mm-hmm. it. And um, not that our characters necessarily 
avoided that because they were they they thought they they were going to have to go to battle against an intractable enemy that there was there was no uh, form of diplomacy available. But um, you know, uh, I wanted I wanted the ascendants to continue to have a presence, um, and because the, the prophets are nonlinear, and um, uh, that that allows you to do, uh, play with time a lot, and to to you can you can have the causes of things occur well after the uh, right. the effects of those things. So that's always fun to play with, and um, I would say the really fun thing for me, and I don't remember exactly when I did this, was hitting upon the idea of using the progenitor, in some sense using the founders, to change the nature of the ascendants and allow them to be um, more than they were and and also in a way fulfill that their own prophecies that they had um, from the true. And um, figuring out that, hey, that planet that Cisco and Dax landed on an, an emissary in the pilot for Deep Space Nine um, was a changeable place. And we never saw that place again. Um, I had it in, uh, I put it in Revelation and Dust, um, but we didn't see it again in the series, really. And so the question is, well, it wasn't the question. I just, I, I hit on the idea of, well, that real, that place Cisco and Dax saw different mm-hmm. things. Maybe it's that that place is malleable. Maybe that that place can can change itself. And making that connection between uh, a transformed ascendant population and the planet-like thing in the wormhole, the malleable planet in the wormhole, just I don't know. To me, that was my. I, I loved hitting on that idea, and I, I really. Um, it really helped me figure out where where I wanted to go. Um, so, and but that was a while ago too. So I've just I've been trying to work toward that, and I'm amazed that it actually worked. Yeah. <laughs> well, there's a there's a few really big aha moments in in this novel, and that's definitely one of them. That was that was a really cool revelation there. So. Yeah, I think that one works because I I was really impressed by that. <laughs> oh, good. I'm glad to hear that. I I really thought it was pretty cool, and I was hoping that readers would like it. It it was one of the neatest things to finally understand where that planet comes from, and and what I loved is how you know you're definitely not afraid because you, we're talking about you know, people a group of of uh characters with the prophets like you said that are nonlinear and so really putting that to task on what that means for the opportunity of storytelling uh you, you open up some amazing doors uh with that and i think it's really cool that you're just playing with that and uh you know uh i i think it's really bold that you're playing with it so i really really enjoy well, that well I appreciate that. I don't know how bold it is. I'm trying very much to to live in this, to write in the spirit of, of mm. Deep Space Nine, you know, which, I mean, Deep Space Nine itself is sort of bold. And I'm just trying to, you know, it's interesting. You want to stay consistent with the, the mm-hmm. tools that you've been given. 
uh, and the setting and the characters and all of that. And yet you also want to come up with new and interesting things. So, um, you know, that's a balancing act. But I'm glad you like it. I certainly had fun writing it. Well, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about uh, kind of where the story is going from here, just in in very broad strokes, like you know, don't not not too specific. But you know, you've mentioned that you're writing the follow up to this story. Uh, will we see the narrative mainly move forward exclusively, or are there plans to kind of go back once again and fill in some of the other gaps that remain? Um, you know, I don't think. I can't, I can't exactly answer that. Uh, and certainly I'm not the only one writing Deep Space Nine novels. So, uh, in fact, the next one that's coming out, um, is Jeff, did Jeff Marriott write it? Or Jeff, Jeff Lang? Yep. Or I'm not sure who's writing the next one, but somebody, somebody's already written the next one that's coming out soon. Um, I don't think that anybody wants to necessarily write uh, stories that fill in a gap, uh, and that's all that they do. Um, because that's not really all that interesting. I mean, it might be interesting for um, some very um, dedicated fans. Uh, they want to know how everything got from point A to point B. But um, there's, I, for me, there's got to be more to a story than just filling in gaps. Um, you don't want to just be the mortar. Uh, you want to you want to be the the building. You want to be the structure. And um, yeah, that's what I tried to do with Ascendance. Yes, I filled in a period of time that we hadn't seen before, but I did it with a big story that also had an impact on Deep Space Nine going forward and uh, you know, Deep Space Nine, the series going forward. And um, I think you know we'll go back if there are stories to tell from that period that mesh with what's going on in the present day for Deep Space Nine. Mm-hmm. Um, Certainly, there are still some stories. I say Rebecca's kidnapping is one of them. Um, you know that certainly could have. You would think that something like that had an impact on her parents and could have well had a an impact mm-hmm. on her. So you know we might see that going forward. I, you know I don't know, um, and I'm sure that there are other things as well. But it, it all depends. We want to you know try and keep moving forward. I think by and large, but that doesn't preclude being able to tell stories set in the past. That's cool. I think that that that's a a great thing Dan and I were actually talking about that the other day and um you know one of the things I think that uh, for me is exciting is to actually see uh you know Deep Space 9 be in that forward position, you know, uh, where um so long we had kind of felt like uh that uh, we had a missing story, you know, and and now that it feels more filled in i'm so excited to watch everything now move forward in in the spirit of you know great trek and so that's really exciting well you know it's interesting really the story that had been set up before the four-year time jump um was the ascendance and and like i said that wasn't they were it wasn't an extensive story we didn't know a lot about them um but it had just been hinted at and, and set up and it and done well so that you wanted to see what happened next and then we've got the four year time jump. But other than that, what's missing in that four year time jump, we mostly don't know. And really the things that that readers might cite as being missing from that period are things like Rebecca's kidnapping, which actually hadn't been set up before the time jump. It was set right. up after. So, you know, 
I mean, that's, it's just, it's interesting. It's interesting from a creative perspective. It's interesting from a writing perspective. It's interesting from a reader's perspective, because I'm a reader too, and I'm a big fan of, of the Star Trek novels and of Deep Space Nine in particular. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's, it, and it's great to be able to have this ability, um, this uh, creative freedom, which both um, CBS and, uh, and especially the editors at Simon & Schuster let us do, uh, let us have. They are terrific in the way that they support us um, and, and try and get things done. They're just interested in telling great stories and in telling great Star Trek. And, you know, as much as we possibly can, we writers try and do that. Well, what I wanted to ask you now, of course, is um, what is uh, coming up for you next, David? And then, of course, where can everybody find you online um, if they want to, you know, talk to you about Ascendance and also be able to keep up on what's latest with uh, David R. George III and his books? Well, uh, as far as finding me online, I do have a Facebook page that's D-R-G-I-I-I. Um, Facebook.com slash D-R-G-I-I-I that um, I haven't, because I've been so, so busy writing lately, I haven't posted too many things, but I do try and um, and uh, talk about what I'm working on uh, there. I also have a Twitter account, David R. George III, I um, which where people can find me, although I haven't been tweeting all that much lately <laughs> either, because as I said, I've been really busy writing. But um yeah, I'm I'm working on a Deep Space Nine novel right now that uh, goes forward from the end of Ascendance, um, and I am contracted to write another novel, not necessarily Deep Space Nine, after that, um, but that's sort of still up in the air at the moment. But um, I'm looking forward to uh, to continuing all my efforts in the Star Trek literary universe, and you know. Deep Space Nine is where I'm focused right now. Well, thank you so much, David, for coming on to talk about Ascendance. Uh, it was great to finally get a wrap-up to the Ascendance storyline in the first place. It, mm -hmm. And uh, we know that you are right now busy at work on the next Deep Space Nine novel. So thank you for taking out some time to talk to us and the listeners as well about Ascendance. Well, thank you for inviting me on. It's always a pleasure to talk to you guys, and uh, uh, I enjoy reaching out to the readers um, a lot, so uh, this is always a pleasure to do. Well, thanks so much. It's, it's always a pleasure to be able to talk to you, so thanks again. Thank you. Well, Matthew, man, anytime we get an author on this show, it's always a thrill, and tonight was no exception. Getting to talk to David R. George about Ascendance was a great time as usual. I think what's so cool about it, Dan, is is just getting to pick their brain about writing these books. And and one of the things that I love about David is that he has such a passion, not just as an author, but he he as a reader. You know, he mm -hmm. cares about this because he's on the same side we are, which is we want to read the good stories too, and he just wants to do his best to give us the good stories. And so I'm really interested to see what people think of this one once it's it's over and uh, and where everybody is, you know, because this is a big storyline that people have been kind of wanting uh, to see played out. It, Strangely enough, it kind of reminds me of the Star Wars prequels. Like people were kind of wondering what this story was going to 
be, you know, and they built it up in their minds. And now I feel bad for David because he's in that same position of trying to deliver that. And I'm so excited to have people listen to this, to read the book and, and get to talk about it on the Babel Conference. Definitely. And it's really exciting to, you know, now speculate about where where Deep Space Nine is going from here, uh, which, you know, to me is the most exciting part for sure. Yeah. And uh, the fact that, you know, we can really see that Deep Space Nine, it, it does look like it is going to be moving forward is pretty fantastic. And I love that idea that we are actually going to finally move forward uh, because it does feel like Deep Space Nine has been kind of looking back for a while. Uh, and it's it's good to have us uh, in the forward position again. So, uh, And I'm so thankful that we get to do this every week, and that's because of our associate producers through Patreon. We've got uh, Will Wynn uh, and Ken Tripp, Brandon Shea and Bruce Gibson, all of these guys help us keep this network coming to you and make sure that Literary Trek specifically comes to you each week. Now, as we're moving into this 50th year of Star Trek and this huge celebration, it's a big time for Trek FM as well. We're trying to make sure we bring you the best quality content with Star Trek and beyond and beyond beyond because not just Star <laughs> Trek beyond, but you know everything else we talk about on the 602 Club. And we're a listener-supported network, and that means that we definitely need your help to keep all of this content coming to each week. It costs quite a bit to do this. And, of course, we have our daily podcast five days a week talking about every episode of Star Trek from here to the end of the year going on right now, from there to here. It's a massive undertaking. This network needs you, and we would love to have you part of the team. We've got some great perks for you. We've got exclusive content producer credit, seats on the content development team, a, a Patreon website, patron.zone, for just the patron listeners that support us. Go check it out at patreon.com slash trekfm and see how you can be part of the team. Now, Dan, when you're not lost somewhere in between the fire and the hand, where can we find you? <laughs> well, Matthew, uh, you can find me online. My website is www.treklit.com, and there, of course, I review Star Trek novels, both old and new. I'm on facebook.com slash treklitreviews, and on Twitter, at Kertrats, that's K-E-R-T-R-A-T-S. And, of course, my Instagram handle is Kertrats47. And uh, you can always find me kicking around the Babel Conference talking about all things Star Trek uh, 24 hours a day. What the heck? I got nothing better to do. <laughs> <laughs> and Matthew, when you're not launching yourself on an exploratory mission into the Gamma Quadrant, where can we find you? I feel like we've done this before. It was like called Mission Gamma. I'm going to have to go look back at my tweets. Uh, you, <laughs> Something like yeah, that. Yeah, you could find me at MattRushing02 on Twitter. I'm on Instagram. I'm sure there's pictures of the Gamma Quadrant from there. Uh, at MRushing. I also do The Orb with Christopher Jones, where we talk about Deep Space Nine and only Deep Space Nine. So definitely join us there. I do the 602 Club, where we talk about all things geeky. Uh, it's a great place uh, to hang out. We don't talk about Star Trek stuff there. We just talk about everything else. And in fact, we actually started... This week, our retrospective on Harry Potter as we are celebrating the 15th year of the Philosopher's Stone, as well as 
looking towards Fantastic Beasts and where to find them coming out in November. And so much more is coming to you this year on the 602 Club. So check that out. And then I'm on my own personal blog at 42lifeinbetween.wordpress.com. Well, thank you so much for joining us. And until next time, live long and read on. What do you call that light reading? To each his own, number one.